Chad, what's up, man? Hey, so good to be back with you. Indeed. It's been quite a week. Like, yeah. You know, when I first had the idea for this whole thing and had the idea to like start doing news uh, during the podcast, I was like, I really hope something noteworthy happens every week so we have something to talk about, but it really just seems like every week there's something. Right. There's, there's always, always something. There really is always something happening. And, you know, whether it be to our good or to our detriment, uh, there's always going to be something to talk about. So let's just dive right into it with right. with the easy stuff first. Um, I think the first story that came up this week was President Nelson meeting with the uh, Pulse nightclub owner. Right. Yeah, you yes. heard about that. Okay. Right. Yeah. So what happened was President Nelson was in Florida to speak to the Saints. And before speaking to a rather large crowd at the Amway Center, I think it holds like, or at least in attendance, there were like 15,000 people. He held a uh, VIP reception in the same building. Now, the way these receptions typically work is you have the visiting leaders come. You have some local stake leaders come. You got some local celebrities if they're LDS or not Mm -hmm. LDS and some other high profile people and their plus ones. And they probably had some nice tables set up in one of the nicer rooms of the venue. And they had a really nice dinner. I'm just basing this off of what I've heard about these receptions in the past and, you know, my own experience or whatever. But whatever the conversation, this is what I'm thinking happened, was that uh, Barbara Roma, the Pulse nightclub owner, and Nelson were probably sitting at, the, sitting at the same table. And whatever the conversation they had was probably not an arranged formal one, though the reception certainly was. That's just, like in my opinion, when I saw that story, it didn't look so much like a deliberate meeting. And I think that's perfect that way like it was just a decent thing to do they were in the same building she was invited she came to the she came to the event and president nelson just checked on her you know what i'm saying like i feel like it's a very decent thing to do Mm -hmm. and i feel like this is christianity in general like the whole point of it is we check on each other you know what i'm saying when you know your neighbors had a rough go you should certainly go check on them and further barbara really seemed to appreciate the words that president nelson had for her Mm -hmm. and uh, they considered it an honor that you know the highest religious leader of any kind of any organization was willing to come through and willing to say some things and willing to invite uh, the people in Florida to come attend this event and also offer some comforting words as they're still healing. Cause I mean, it was only 2016 when this happened, right? Yeah. Three years ago, three years ago, like yeah. they're still healing from this whole thing. So, you know, uh, Barbara Pom- Pomo seemed to really appreciate the words and, I don't know. I think it was just a really nice gesture. Yeah, and I think there one thing one thing that you absolutely can do no matter where you are in terms of opinion or perspective on LGBT lives and dignity, you can show up to mourn with those who mourn. Absolutely. You can yes. still be compassionate. Anyone any on anywhere. There's no excuse for not showing up. There's no excuse yeah. for not engaging in interfaith vigils yeah. or um, showing up in some way to 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 be present. And, yeah. and so much of this is a ministry of present because you're not going to say the right things. There's nothing you can say, mm-hmm. but you can be there. Yes. And you can make sure that that person is not alone and say, we're mm-hmm. with you. Um, and that's, that's the most, that's probably all you can do, but that's the most important thing. You it's can the most do, important thing you can is, do is not to ignore it and pretend like it didn't happen because so many, I remember the, so before this, the biggest massacre of, LGBT Americans was the um, upstairs lounge fire in 1973 um, where this do you know about this no oh so this up until the pulse this was the biggest massacre of LGBT Americans okay 
and uh, this was in New Orleans, and I don't, I may not have all the details, but there was this gay bar or lounge that had a number of people celebrate, and this is back in '73, so we're mm-hmm. not even 2016. This is back when it was still very dangerous, and someone came in um, with some type of explosive, fiery thing and set the whole place on fire, and. Um, a number of people died. A number of people were injured. I can't remember how many. I think it was like 20 or something. It was in the tens of people that uh, that died. And the sad thing about this is ma- many of the mainstream news organizations just ignored it because it because it happened to queer people. It didn't. Ha- it doesn't matter. Mm. And it w- was like we're not even people. And back in 70, I think it was 73, uh, many people whose they didn't even come to claim the dead bodies of their rejected relatives. They're like, nope. Wow. So there were people. There were people that were that didn't have anyone to claim them, uh, and to give them a funeral and to give them a burial. Hmm. And it's just, it's just an awful thing to do. Not only the original attack, but then the whole surrounding thing. It was awful, and I think a similar thing can very easily happen with this uh with the pulse shooting i remember the church came out with a statement shortly after it happened and it was basically we 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 are very sorrowful about this event but what they didn't do is they didn't mention the nature of the event Hmm. that it was uh primarily queer and trans people and many of them were people of color they just made it look like oh this happened at this place I can't remember now the language that they used, but we should be able to specify, just like uh, like J- Jesus did. He acknowledged the person, one on one. He noticed people's identities, mm. and we should be able to name that, or else you don't have the whole picture. Mm. When the identities were important, right. they made sure we right. knew those identities in the scriptures, like the woman at the well in Samaria. Right. The whole okay, so. Yeah, Jesus acknowledged the identities of the people when, when the when the identities mattered, and um, in this particular case, you know, this just really acknowledged the humanity of the whole situation. Mm-hmm. Even though I don't think, or, I mean, they didn't really acknowledge the nature like that being a hate crime for the pulse shooting. What President Nelson did just this past week was at least acknowledge the humanity of the situation, which is something you brought up at the right. beginning, and that is. That is the most important thing, I believe. But I definitely agree that the nature of this whole thing needs to be pointed out, needs to be acknowledged, mm-hmm. so that um, so that we can see the whole thing and acknowledge the whole process of mourning, because this was a hate right. crime. And to acknowledge that is to also continue to acknowledge the humanity of those lives lost, because it's not like those part that part of their identity didn't matter in their death. And I just want to add, this may be obvious to people already, but part of the horror of a hate crime is what it does, not just to the, the people directly involved, but to it's a collective way of abusing an entire population based on the example of a few. Like Because then people think, oh, this could happen to me. Mm. People are afraid to be themselves. And you can terrorize and intimidate an entire population only by killing a few of them. Okay. And that's why it's so devastating, and you have to um, remember this. And I remember after the synagogue shootings, all of my Jewish friends could feel could feel it, right? Mm. That there is something 
that that attacked them as a people. Yeah. And it happened to what happened to one sort of ends up affecting all of them. And we should be mindful of that when when these things happen. That kind of brings me to the next thing I want to talk about. That's Sudan. I don't know if you heard about what happened in Sudan this week or has been happening for like the last so. six months. Okay. A lot of people have not, and that's part of the disturbing thing about this particular story. But apparently in Sudan, for the, I mean, for the, like the last while, there's been a civil war there. For these last six months, there have been demonstrations by the people to push for more of a democracy than the tyrannical leadership that they had. Mm-hmm. Now, back in April, they finally ousted their leader, who was you know, just kicked out, and they've been working and negotiating with the military and the police who have been you know, just patrolling the whole of the country or whatever to try to get a three-year-long transitional government so they could, in essence, root out the corruptness of the government that had been in power. So they wanted a transitional government by the people for the next three years so they could get that corruption out of there. Now, just in the last 10 days, they decided they were going to scrap those negotiations, not the people, but the people in power at this particular time, and they were going to attack the civilians and the demonstrators, the people who were who have been protesting mm-hmm. for like the last six months or whatever. And a hundred people died. Like just this was back in June third, I believe, where there was like this attack on these people. Many people were attacked. Many people were assaulted and raped. And like I said, over a hundred people died, and that was pretty significant. It was. I mean, it's a crisis. It's what's going on in Sudan right now. Now, something I do want to draw attention to was that a lot of people have not heard about this. Like, I've been listening to NPR pretty much the entire week, haven't really heard anything. Usually when the BBC comes on, I turn that off because, you know, by then I've already heard like two or four hours of the news, so I'm like done at that point. So maybe they talk about it on the BBC, but I just don't really be hearing it like that. And also by the time the news really hit the States, it was on Loving Day. And most of my news feed was blowing up with all the celebrations and explorations of what Loving Day meant to a lot of Mm -hmm. people. So I didn't really hear about it. The way I heard about it was I had an Uber customer at that time who when I discussed Loving Day with him, he was like, oh, yeah, my um, my feed isn't really blowing up with that. Like my feed is blowing up with this stuff that's going on in Sudan. And he happened to be Sudanese. So there was that whole thing. And then I Googled it and I noticed that, oh, my gosh, there's a whole crisis going on here where. So many people have died and been assaulted. And further, this is a demonstration that's being led by women of color. I mean, Sudan is an African country, so of course there are women of color. But, mm-hmm. you know, this just is a... I mean, you've talked about the Pulse shooting. You've talked about um, the synagogue shootings. There is there's a pattern. And it's just something I wanted to... Something I want to draw attention to. When... With all this death during the crackdown by Sudan military and the police forces, I didn't hear the church say anything. And something that really gets to me is when the church will say that, will often say something that has to do with mass violence unless it affects the African diaspora. And then when there was a terror attack in France, the church released a statement. But when the same kind of violence happened in Kenya, killing three times as many people, the church didn't say anything. When Pulse and the synagogue shootings happened, the church released statements. When Notre Dame Cathedral burned down, we talked about this over a month ago. The Mm -hmm. church released a statement on that. The local leaders visited with the local clergy. They released a statement in French on the um, French Mm -hmm. General Authorities Church page. But then 
when the Charleston Nine happened, nothing was said. And when the church buildings in the South, three of them were burned down, nothing was said. So this is a pattern. And I regularly talk about this with other black members of the church. We notice a pattern of silence when it comes to violence against the African diaspora. We'd really just like to see the church be more vocal about those kinds of things. And I don't know if it's a function of being in America and simply not Mm-hmm. being as exposed to this news or just a general apathy. I don't, w- I don't really want to use that word, but that's, that is what it feels like. So it was, just a, it was just something that I noticed in both my not hearing about this news and the church not really saying anything about it. It's just a clear tragedy that our attention is not being brought to and that the church isn't really bringing attention to. Yeah, I think one of the, the challenges is that when we especially we white people, um, you know, we look at France, we look at what happens and think that, that, ha- that that's happening to us in some way because we have some connection with Europe, um, both on how we think, what we look like, where we came right. from, so people look philosophically. Like and so we can easily empathize and relate. And so... But what, here's the, one of the most radical things about what Joseph Smith taught okay. is the, the, that the entire human race is not just physically one family, but spiritually one family too. Okay. So if you take Joseph seriously, there's no us and them. There's only us. Mm. There's only us. What happens to them, these others, happens to us because there really are no others. When you look mm. at it, when you zoom out it, zoom out with a restoration lens you realize there's no way that you can can uh can care about yourself but not care about other people and be walking in the light of christ Mm. because they're it's all connected and basically to ignore your fellow neighbor is to ignore god yeah man we're all created in the image of god um, we're all the offspring of God, and that should change how we deal with, oh, what hap- what happens in Africa, all these other things. My other curiosity is, like, I wonder if um, what historically black denominations in the U.S. Uh, have said, what do they say about uh, various events around the world? And also, the uh, presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church is Michael Curry, and he is, oh, I, I love him. He's great. He, I have a lot of respect for him. He's an African-American man. Um, who was elected to this. I think he's probably the only black leader of a denomination in the U.S. that's not a historically black denomination. I could be wrong about that. Okay. But he's the only one I know about. And he has some real profound wisdom, uh, to, to, and we can talk about him more later, but I'm just wondering, like, we should have more Michael Curry's in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Is he a theologian as well? Uh, he's got a theological, some theological training. He's okay. trained as an Episcopal priest and then as a bishop. He went to seminary. He, um, I don't know if he's an academic, like ha- if he has a PhD or not, but he definitely has done his reading of black theology, um, mm. both from the lived experience and from the academic standpoint. I just bring that up because I remember you talking about, and I thought this was a good point, to be great to have African-American Theologians in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints. I would really like people like that to help breathe some, in t- breathe some more intention into Mormon theology for the black bodies in the church, right. for the black souls in the church. I think that'd be great. 
but uh, that's really cool that he's able to do that. I really like yeah. that. And one thing you brought up is a, is this major concern about how our news gets filtered and curated for us. Yeah. Especially uh, I get my most of my news from places like Facebook or Reddit that, that are very – it's not like everyone hears the same thing. You hear get, you what you get is tailored to what they think you want to see and what you engage with so that they can make the application – more addictive and you keep going back to it and there's got to be some way around this and we should think of a way of uh coming in contact with stuff that you don't normally come in contact with mm. i've done this by liking it's weird but i've liked a lot of right-wing um and alt-right groups on facebook yeah. so i hear all this awful stuff mm -hmm. so i so i know what's going on um but i should uh, uh figure out other ways of of uh, escaping that bubble, <laughs> uh, which reminds me, did you hear about the two, uh, the two women in London who were attacked on a on a bus? Dude, yeah, I didn't, I didn't actually think that was real the first time I saw that headline. Like, but more people shared it, and then I checked the story. It had multiple sources, and I was like, oh my gosh, this is. I mean, first of all, it's 2019. This kind of violence against women, this kind of violence against LGBTQ folk is happening. Like it was just too shocking to me to believe initially. Well, let me tell you, I uh, I saw that and I saw that in multiple places online. And then one of the I uh, I don't even think her name is is published, but I should send you this. So one of the two women uh, that were survivors of that incident wrote this really important thing and she's like why is all this attention on us we're white women there were so many trans uh women of color who were murdered in this past month oh, that yeah. these stories never went viral they didn't get any sympathy they didn't get any acknowledgement here we are two white uh, two women in in uh in london uh yes we got beat up and that's wrong and everything but there's so much disproportional uh empathy and awareness that gets placed on them uh that doesn't get placed on other things and we should be think we should think about that mm. okay then yeah definitely need to think about that okay so that is that's that whole thing sudan another thing just briefly to mention uh juneteenth is coming up and for those of you who don't know about juneteenth it's occasionally referred to as Juneteenth Independence, Black Independence, or Freedom Day. And it was also the day of the emancipation of the last enslaved black folks. So June 19th, 1865, it's coming up. Usually it's another opportunity to simply, uh, for celebration and exploration of African-American history and heritage. And if you want to know how to celebrate Juneteenth, oh gosh. Venmo your black friends fifty dollars. <laughs> you saw that? I did, and I was tempted. <laughs> I was very tempted, but um, yeah, there's just it's just another opportunity to celebrate African American history and to explore it as well. Just just another fun day to do that kind of thing. And speaking of which, Derek, I understand mm -hmm. that you have finally watched. Uh, some episodes of When They See Us. Yes, yeah, so I watched. So each there are four episodes, each an hour long, and I made it to the uh, third, uh, and I'll watch the fourth this afternoon. Yeah, there's a, a lot there. The first thing I want to say is, A, that it's really well done from a production standpoint in terms of the casting and the performance and just the way it's artistically put together. And so it has a very powerful impact 
And that powerful impact is kind of what I want to get to. And I have to admit, as a white person, feeling deeply uncomfortable watching this. And if I take a step back, you would have to say, well, yeah, of course, white people should feel uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, so, so it worked. But part of it is, a se- it was a sense of, and let's go back. I, I sent you this, this piece about white fragility. I don't know if we want to post that online. But so much of racism is adaptive in terms of um, it evolves new ways of, of staying alive. And one of those self-protecting measures is white fragility in the sense of now we want, we who are white, either through fear or guilt or, or, or all these other things, have a very low ability to tolerate um, the stress of race-related topics or conversations. Mm-hmm. And I could feel that myself. Um, not that I'm going to stop watching it, but I realized I felt a sense of um, sorrow and and despair and hopelessness in looking at this tragedy that I wanted to reach through the screen and like fix it and 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 like especially yeah at just all these things like I realized the horror of this and then uh and not only that but then my role as someone who benefits from a criminal justice system that is claiming to to protect me Mm. right and to protect white people. And so, yeah, I realize that I benefit from racism and I contribute and I'm complicit in this whole structure. And um, and just dealing with the fact that even having the conversation and being exposed to, so the, to these injustices is very hard for a lot of white people. Um, and so we need to, we who are white need to build stamina to be able to have these things it, rather than mm. shut down. What do you think? Did I do the wrong thing? I'm probably <laughs> like this. Uh, here, here's the thing. I've been looking at it primarily as an educational opportunity, and I'm glad you were able to gain that from it. And I think it's important that we gain things like that from it and gain this kind of awareness of ourselves. The primary thing I was looking for, and I think I alluded to this last week when we talked about this or when they see us, is I simply want – I want – white folks who are not as exposed to this life that people like me have or this kind of anxiety that people like me have, I want them to simply have more empathy for people that look like me. You know what I'm saying? Because I feel like that is your responsibility as a Christian. Ultimately, as a Christian, you you already said this, there's no us and them. There's only us. And there can only be an us if you're making an effort to understand everybody on this planet. So we have to make that effort. And I feel like this is, when they see us as an opportunity to do just that. Mm-hmm. So whatever you're gaining from this, there is a way to deal with all those feelings and to work with these feelings of, um, you know, white guilt or white fragility, whatever you want to describe what you're processing. But the most important thing that you can gain from this, that you will gain from this is an understanding of the system and how it works mm-hmm. to put these young black and Latino men in jail and keep them there for 12 years with no evidence. And also to, understand the anxiety and the trauma that black people deal with on a regular basis because in that case I, and I believe I said this last week you're going to be in a better position to minister to them mm-hmm. and that's what I care about most as Christians as Latter-day Saints I just want us to be in a better position to minister to each other so that everybody can receive the gospel of Jesus Christ that is why I'm such a strong advocate for particularly white people seeing this film I just want all of you 
to be able to be better ministers of the gospel, particularly to, particularly to people that look like me, because I want to see more of us here. More of us belong here. We're supposed mm-hmm. to be the most spiritual and religious people in this country. And, I mean, we are, according to the Higher Education Research Institute. So yeah. I just want to see more of us in here, and this is a good tool in making sure that happens. Yeah, and I think part of the the thing, and the other thing about this is it didn't really tell me um, cause I, I know, I know a lot already about, you know, the injustices in our, in our criminal injustice system, but putting a particular face on it and like seeing their one story really has an impact versus if, if I told you, oh, you know, 2000 people were wrongly incarcerated this year. Yeah, that's 2000 people. And that's a lot. But when you just get to know one of them and see like, what their life was before the false accusation and then what it's like after Mm -hmm. it moves you in a very particular way by focusing on the one. And I think that's why Jesus or that's why the scriptures talk about these uh, stories of specific people so that we can build a connection. And, um, and I think that's one thing where, where uh, our Latter-day Saint culture gets it wrong is we forget the specificity of the gospel. We now think, oh, this is what the whole plan of salvation is like. It's your mom and dad and however many kids and a dog and a white fence. It's the 1950s. And we think that everyone is the same and don't get any sense of of the story of the one. Like now we're all supposed to have the same life. And that's never what, what the gospel has ever been about. Yeah. So that can lead us into some other stories, I think, too. Any Was there anything else you wanted to say about this? No, that was really it. Thank you. On that note, we're going to go back and uh, go back to the LGBTQ gear real quick. And I just want to talk about uh, the story that's been circulating on social media among the Latter-day Saint community regarding Tan France. Have you, uh, I assume you've seen this. Yeah, I've seen this. Okay. So Tan France, for those of you who are not aware, Tan France is a, um, well, he's, on Queer Eye, he's, that's what he's known for. And he's currently on a book tour provo- promoting his, you know, New York Times number one bestseller or whatever. And apparently it's a good book. But he was, like, uh, talking about it in Salt Lake City. And he told his crowd that just because we don't agree on church practice, it doesn't mean we get to hate. Basically, he was saying a lot of positive things about the church, about President Hinckley, and about his uh, friends and family members who are members. He talked about how he's got in-laws who are, who are members yeah, of the church. Yeah, his husband is from a from an LDS background. Okay. Um so he and he lives in Salt Lake if I if I understand this right, which is, is interesting because that means he's he's brown. Uh he's he's of Pakistani her- heritage. He grew up in in the UK. I believe he's, he's a Muslim. Muslim. Yeah. So and then he's an immigrant to the US. So yeah. he's a lot of stuff that people don't like. Yeah. But the the Muslim part of his background and so he talks elsewhere about his relationship with his husband and how they both come from religions where they don't practice everything that's a part of their religion. So they take what works for them mm. in both cases. And that's something that they have in common. Mm. And I think you should take his statements about the LDS context in light of that. Yeah. Because if you read his, a lot of people, especially straight people who want to protect the church more than actually live out the church's ministry. Oh, that bugs me because <laughs> the whole point of the church isn't, to serve the church. Yeah. The whole point of the church is to serve the world. Mm. And if you're out here 
looking at the institution as something whose reputation is the most important thing in the conversation, you've gotten Christ completely wrong. Mm. Christ, I don't think, ever once defended an institution. He defended people, yeah. and he defended values, and he defended like actions, but I, he never took an existing— and he actually tore down instru- institutions, if mm-hmm. you think about it. But anyway, what, what you have to realize is that, that Tan France wasn't talking about the doctrine of the church or the policies of the church. He's talking about the people of the church, and mm. he said the people of the church are basically good. So don't hate on them. Um, and he can, uh, and it's a similar thing with many Muslims who may or may not agree with the things that they were taught, but still live out a good life. And so I think that needs to be taken into account, that you can't weaponize this as an exoneration of the church in its complete uh, way it exists now in terms yeah. of our understanding of doctrine and policy, which is some people are going to twist this. Into oh, saying, absolutely. It's already happening. It's already happening. Yeah. And like the majority of the people, and I just wanted to make this observation, majority of the people that I feel like are sharing this story were silent anytime something about the epidemic of homelessness or suicide among the yeah. LGBTQ community within the church mm-hmm. was happening. So I'm already yeah. worried about the pink washing. I don't know if I'm using that word correctly. I just learned this a week or two ago yeah. from you, by the way. But I already worry about people weaponizing this thing from Tan France as a means of exonerating the church. Yeah, and that's how you can know who the true allies are. It's like what Jesus said, you'll know them by their fruits. If they only share something that seems pro-gay when it makes the church look good, and never when it may challenge the church, then you realize what side they're truly on and Mm. where their hypocrisy lies. Mm -hmm. It's about their image. And, And I think this is something true both for straight people in the church and for white people in the church is we don't wanna think that we're in a church that's bad. Right. Right. And I don't. I don't want to think that I'm in a church that's racist, but mm-hmm. I am. Right. And so I have to navigate that in a certain way. And I think something that Tan France pointed out is that what's best about our people is our people. Mm. A lot of a lot of Latter day Saints are good, loving people um, who want to do the right thing, who are nice. Uh, nice is different from good. Oh, absolutely. Good, good isn't always pretty to watch. Right. Uh, but but they're they're trying to be nice. And I think that's what Tan is noticing. And I think we should live into our character more because in many cases our people, our everyday people, are better than our church's uh, understanding of its history, doctrine, and policy would lead them otherwise to be. Certainly, certainly. And this, this is also something really insidious about how all oppressions work and i think this is true for homophobia and racism is that they've their biggest adaptation is now to make the term racist or homophobe into a slur or into a slur what is that nonsense because the biggest i think one of the biggest successes of racism is to make racism this completely evil thing that only really bad people do yeah. because what that what that means is then good people won't recognize their complicity in it mm-hmm. because they're uh, this is this is horrible to say but good people can be racist no i don't think that's a horrible and thing to say like two things can be true yes and like i've grown up around those people like you know you should know and, we and good people and when we're going to talk about this with some of our leaders of the church we have to simultaneously say look they're good people mm-hmm. but They've made, they're mistaken about yeah. some very significant things 
that have led to a, a significant amount of hurt, pain, and terror mm-hmm. for my people, um, well, as well as your people. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, we're all one people, like I said earlier, <laughs> but, but you know what I mean. Yeah. There's, there's a sense in which, um, which, uh, and then Robin D'Angelo, the one, the, the, the white uh, fragility piece, she talks a little bit about how racism has now become something that has to be um, individual. It's never collective. Mm-hmm. It's something that an invid- individual does. Yeah. That it has to be conscious, that they have to be aware of what they're doing, mm-hmm. and it has to be intentional, that they're intentionally trying to harm someone. So reducing racism to something that's individual and un- uh, conscious and intentional is so adaptive because now what it means is people won't recognize the racism that's systemic or structural. They won't recognize the racism that is um, unconscious, mm-hmm. which most of it is, Yeah, uh, which is harder to weed out. And then it, most people won't recognize racism if it's accidental or unintentional. And that's mm-hmm. really where a lot of this, this problem goes. Absolutely. So when, when people say, Derek, you're a racist, I don't take that as an insult because it's not meaning that I'm a bad person. And I think, when people hear the word homophobe or something about homophobia, it's the same. They think, oh, I'm ta- calling you a bad person. Yeah. And the framework I'm using is, no, you can be a good person who's mistaken and who's absorbed through no fault of your own everything that we're swimming in. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's something that we need to recognize in the church when we dialogue on this. If I go mm-hmm. up to people and say you're a homophobe, it's going to cause a significant amount of uh, pushback. Of course. Even if I'm right. Yeah. Um, because homophobia has become so adaptive that people now, it used to be like 20 years ago, people were proud of their homophobia. Mm-hmm. Like now it's become a little bit not PC mm. and a little bit better for gay people. So now people, it, now people don't want to be labeled as anti-gay. Whereas mm. people used to be, you call them anti-gay, they're like, yes, we are anti-gay. <laughs> they used th- that was their attitude because they were on a moral crusade to, to whatever. Now that gay people have gotten some scraps of justice in our culture, it's, it's not as cool to be anti-gay, yeah. which means that homophobia has evolved. It has mutated into this other thing that now is going to self-protect and make it harder to root out. And that's why these oppressions are so adaptive that we need to be one step ahead of them. Mm. Great. Let's go ahead, because I got nothing else to say about that. Let's just go ahead and uh, move on to the Come Follow Me, unless you have other news. Um, I wanted to just mention real quick that um, Ecuador's highest court authorized marriage equality. Ah, yes. And Botswana decriminalized gay relationships. And we have to talk about the colonial legacy behind both of these things because in many ways this particular view of marriage got exported from Europe and imposed by force on Europe's colonies, which is basically every country in the world but five, mm-hmm. um, and which leads to a very, very misleading uh, impression because many people in the West, in the Western civilization, will say, well, look, we've all – all cultures have had the same view of marriage for thousands and thousands of years, and that is absolutely not true. Mm. It ignores the, the indigenous people all around the world who had other constructions of gender, other patterns of family, other ways of doing things, and you just have this artificial illusion of uni- uniformity on this because of Europe's way of uh, colonizing the world with its one specific view of marriage, mm. man plus woman 
plus kids and all that other stuff. And so that's what bugs me when people try to use like, well, every culture through thousands of years. Like, no, you haven't. Mm -hmm. You've done your white people homework, but you haven't done the rest of the homework. Yeah. Before we move on to the come follow me, I just wanted to talk a little bit about. So we were both were in the pride parade last. Oh, yes. Last Saturday. Mm -hmm. And so I want to talk. What were your feelings about it? How did you feel marching behind a banner that said Mormons building bridges? You know, um, this is only my second Pride Parade, so, you know, take this with a grain of salt or whatever. But um, I knew exactly why I was there. I wanted to build those bridges, and just about all, all of us that were marching this parade were affirming members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We are the ones that are capable of building the bridges because we mm -hmm. are affirming. I don't think we can really build a bridge between these communities unless we, unless we accept your identities as authentic. Mm -hmm. So that's what it is to build a bridge to me, first of all. I don't really think bridge building is possible if you're not really an affirming person. But I do feel a greater responsibility on myself because I am an affirming person to build a bridge perhaps between members of the LGBTQ LDS community and the non-affirming members. You know, we talked about right. that. I think uh, it was Matt Bynes who talked about the avocado analogy. Um Gosh, and I'm going to butcher it right now, but basically, you know, we are going after the people who will give just a little bit. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's my mm -hmm. responsibility is to go after the avocados, go after the people who are going to give just a little bit because they're yeah. the ones I can touch. And then they are going to give more and then they'll be able to uh, reach the people who can give just a yeah. little bit when those avocados are a little bit more ripe. Um, so sorry, just to answer the question, how I felt being a member of the church in that parade, I felt proud because I saw our numbers. There was a lot of us there, and there's only going to be more of us next year in the parade. Right. It just made me feel proud to represent a small but growing uh, constituency of affirming Mormons who want to see change happen and who want to embrace the members of the LGBTQ community in all their splendor and glory. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I had a lot of feelings going through this because I've been in, in parades many times before, but it was always behind a banner that was much more recognized as a leader in LGBT rights, either with the Episcopal Church or with very various Jewish groups, I think I've been. I, well, I can't even remember. I've been with so many different groups. Um, and this is the first time where where the where the juxtaposition of gay plus religion looks kind of suspect mm -hmm. and i was thinking about that i was going down like are these people many of whom this is their only encounter all year with any type of religion what will they think you know um what will they think of us and the other thing i noticed was all these other groups uh i have a i have a, a very close friend she um is an episcopal priest in 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 uh in, in boston and she walks the whole pride in her collar, in her clerical collar, holding her hand, uh, holding the hand of her wife, mm. even though it's always hot and sticky and you don't want to hold someone's hand. It's just, ugh. But she's like, I'm going to do this because these people need to see a same gender couple who's approved by the church. Mm. One thing I noticed that in our group, we didn't have any we didn't have any couples holding hands. We did not. Um, we had some straight couples there. I don't know if they were holding hands, <laughs> which they shouldn't do. 
Right. If they're in the, I don't. As speaking for myself, I don't think they should do that. Okay. If they're, uh, but we didn't have any gay couples, and I, I'm not sure how many queer people we actually had. To my knowledge, I might have been the only one. <laughs> there might be other people that, because there were people that I didn't know who were there. Yeah. But what does it look like if, um, if it's all or almost all straight and cisgender people in your pride parade? It's going to look funny. Mm. You know, is it going to look as, is it going to look right? It would be like, um, I remember this, uh, uh, this, uh, I can't remember if this was even true or not, or if it was fake or not, but I saw this picture of this, like, um, uh, this, this was like this booth and it had a big sign on it. It was like, black people for Trump or something like that. But it was all uh. white people behind it. <laughs> <laughs> and like, where are the black people? Like, what? There, there's a problem. I'm sorry. Was this was this real? Did I miss that part? We're not sure if this was real? I don't know where I saw it or went under what oh circumstances. Oh, my gosh. But I what? saw that. I can't even remember now what the sign said. It was like, it was like black people who support Trump or like, I don't remember. And it was all white people behind the banner. Oh, you know what? I do remember seeing this. And I saw this at rallies. It was at rallies with just random people holding these signs, black people for Trump or women for Trump. And the person holding the sign wouldn't always match. You would just <laughs> see the sign. So like, I do remember seeing this, specifically a black people for Trump sign and a white person was holding it. And I'm just like, um, messaging, like this doesn't... This doesn't look all the way right. Right, right, and that's what I'm thinking with our our. Uh, yeah, we need to to figure out, but it shouldn't be all queer people either because the burden of this work needs to be on straight people, mm. right? I don't need a parade. I don't. I wasn't going to even be in the parade because I wanted to watch it. I shouldn't have to be out there, improving the reputation of my people. Yeah, that's not my job. I mean, it is on other on other axes, but not on this issue. It should be straight people taking the burden off of queer people and onto themselves. Mm. Um, so, yeah. So that's all I had to say about Pride. I, okay. I wonder what will happen next year. Um, maybe we'll get more people. We had, I think, about 22 people, if I remember correctly. Mm. And the other good thing is that morning, thank you so much for coming with me to the pride interfaith service where we had lds representation which Ah. was me yes um, and i read carol lynn pearson's poem pioneers connecting the queer experience to her uh experience as uh relating to the mormon pioneers Mm. she's like my people were mormon pioneers Mm. i'll be all right and i think that because we're doing hard stuff we're doing unprecedented stuff uh, and and we'll be all right. Yep, we're pioneers now. So yeah, that's all I had for news. I guess we could move on to come follow me. Yeah, let's go ahead and do that. I don't have a lot to say about this particular thing, like, but one particular teaching in this uh, in this lesson did stand out to me that I want to share. And uh, this was just the notion that conversion is an ongoing process. Mm-hmm. I really like this teaching of Jesus or the implied teaching of Jesus that conversion is just going to continue regardless of 
how strong your testimony is. Because he said this to Peter, when thou art converted, strengthen your brethren. Remember who Peter was. He was the first to express his testimony of the divinity of the Savior Jesus Christ. And he had done so many things, witnessed miracles with Jesus mm -hmm. Christ. He was pretty much with him th this entire time. But Jesus implied that he still had more work to do in the conversion process. And we know how the rest of this story goes, at least in this particular chapter where he says this. This is where Jesus, or not Jesus, where Peter professes his willingness to go to, you know, pretty much to die for the Savior. But, you know, the Savior calls him out on it. And he's like, you know, you're going to deny me three times before the cock crows three times. So, like, yeah. You still got some work to do. And we see this throughout uh, Peter's ministry that he's still going to have some growth to do. We see this when he is commanded to take the gospel to the Gentiles. We see this when he cuts the dude's ear off. We see this when he just does all these other brazen and impetuous things. Uh, we talked about it last week when he wouldn't let the Savior wash his feet. Um, there's just clearly more work for Peter to do, even though he clearly has a testimony. And that really speaks to me as someone who's earnestly trying to be a disciple of Christ, that even though I do have a testimony, there is much more. There is a much deeper thing about conversion, or rather being converted is being different than having a testimony. Like conversion implies a regular pattern of consistent uh, repentance, obedience, and diligence in keeping the commandments. You know what I'm saying? Like conversion is a very, th there, there's this expression I really like, and I forget who said it, but it said that there's no such thing as an instant Christian, only a constant Christian. Mm. That is what it really is to be converted, in my opinion, right. is to be a constant Christian, somebody who is, like I said, making a diligent, consistent effort to repent and obey the commandments, not just having a testimony, but regularly developing that testimony and acting on that testimony. So that was probably my biggest takeaway from this lesson was this notion that conversion is an ongoing process and not just a one-time thing. Mm -hmm. Conversion doesn't start or end at baptism. It continues throughout our entire lives. And I suspect that if a man as great as Peter and a man as significant as Peter in the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ still needs to be converted, why would it be the same for our leaders of the church? Right. That is totally true. Um, especially in light of what I said about good people. You can be good people and still be influenced by this water that we're swimming in. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's something that we all have to repent of. And remember what Peter said when he was commanded to take the gospel to the Gentiles. He said, Lord, I never ate anything unclean. And the mm -hmm. Lord had to correct and be like, don't call what I gave you unclean. I said kill and eat. So you kill and eat. This is, <laughs> this is good. Did I not tell you you yeah. can kill and eat? And you got to be like, uh, but that, that stuff is unclean, Lord. Don't call what I've given you unclean. And I feel like this is about to happen yeah. in a very short time for other marginalized groups. When the <laughs> I suspect that when President Oaks may be our next prophet, I mean, he's in line. I suspect that this could happen to him where the commandment is given to make room at the table yeah. for the members of the LGBTQ community. Elder Oaks, or sorry, President Oaks may very well be like, but... But they're gay, you know, what we like, I've never married a gay couple before or something like that. And God's just going to be like, yeah, but I made him that way. So figure it out. Make it work. Yeah. And one thing. So I spoke in. Uh, Don't to, call what I gave you sinful. <laughs> I spoke to a group in Nashua, a stake sponsored support oh, group yes, for okay. LGBT group. And that was one of my points was when you look at the narrative carefully in Acts chapter 10. Mm. You've got 
Cornelius knowing he's included before Peter does. People say, well, you can't get personal revelation, blah, blah, blah. You have to wait. Like, no, literally, we can timestamp it and see down to which hour because we know the hour that uh, Cornelius got the the visitation. And then we know the hour that the uh, Peter the next day got the vision uh, that that declared uh, Gentiles part of the community. And so, yes, of course, I think we are in that in-between moment where we who are LGBT and and members of the church know that we have a place here. Mm-hmm. Not everyone else has heard the memo yet, yep. but we've heard it. The spirit is on the move among us just like it was among the Gentiles at that time. That is mad interesting. I never even considered that. Cornelius knew before knew. the leader of the church knew. He did. That and he, he wasn't was. even a member of the church, he wasn't. of course. That is that's wild. And, and this, that's how I felt because I knew before I was a member of this church, the spirit leading me in this direction saying, look, you've got a place here. And yeah. So yeah. I'm, I'm, I am a lot like Cornelius, which is different than people who are LGBT and grow up in the church. Like I was brought into this church by the spirit. Mm. There's there's no because that was not my idea. I mm. would be the last person to join on my own idea. <laughs> um, so let me talk about three things real real quickly. Oh, if I may, just real oh, quick, real just uh, to liken what you said to uh, another one of my heroes, uh, Papa Darius Gray. Oh, He yeah. mentioned something very similar yeah. about how he knew, probably before members of this church knew, that he was supposed to be a member of this church and that he was supposed to do great things in it. He's, for those of you who don't know, Papa Darius Gray, he is one of the first... Um, leaders of the Genesis group, a group that was created to minister to the black members of the church, one of the first leaders of that group. Mm -hmm. And uh, he is who many of the black members of the church today look up to as a spiritual mentor. And we lean on him when our testimonies aren't as strong as we would like them to be. But um, I liken him to a Cornelius as well, because he in essence got that same prompting. He, when he learned about the racist, the racism in the church, he wasn't going to join, but the Lord told him to join. He knew before anybody else knew that he was going to have a place here and he joined and he took that leap of faith in spite of what was happening in the church. So I just like how you said that. I'm just like, that is very reminiscent Mm -hmm. of what, uh, you know, what Brother Darius Gray said when he initially joined the church. Yeah, I I was very glad to meet Papa Gray. And I don't want to compare my story to his because it hasn't turned out yet <laughs> yeah. the same way. But uh, but he's the one that he told me. He said, oh, you, you, you kind of did what I did. Mm. And uh, so I'm very proud to be in that tradition. Powerful. So three things real quick. Um, all these are from, I'm going to take from Luke chapter 22. Okay. The first one has to do with Passover. And Passover is, a first of all, a liberatory meal. It's a recall of, of literally Israel coming out of Egypt. Yes. And I should say that— He just did air quotes, by the way, <laughs> around the coming out part. Y'all can't see it, but he did air quotes. Yes, quote, coming out. <laughs> uh, but Israel coming out of Egypt. And the, the Hebrew word for uh, Egypt is Mitzrayim, which means a narrow place. Okay. You know, a place where you can't be yourself. You can't be authentic. You don't have enough room. So it's almost like a like a closet. Mm. Um, so they uh, so this is celebrating the fact that God intervened in history in a very dramatic and powerful way with an outstretched arm to save people from this situation. And that's the God we believe in, and that's the God we should remember every time we take the sacrament. Yes, sir. We should um, also look at the the family nature of Passover because Jesus was in Jerusalem with 
12 uh, with his 12 disciples and in a oh. sense he created a, an alternative family structure mm. um, because Passover was supposed to be done with your family in your home it is a home-based ritual um, and and so so you've got this going on here and he this tells us a number of things like the nuclear family isn't the only pattern for Christian com Christian communal living there are many ways of plugging into Christianity and this uh, this 1950s uh, suburban oh first of all let me just say this now is so President Oaks is under under this idea based on you know the time that he grew up of what a family should look like and you've got this idea of what it was like for middle-class suburbia in the 1950s. And the, th the thing is, we are, n apart from the whole gender and orientation stuff, we're not in that situation economically anymore. Mm. No one of my peers can afford to own a house. Yeah. Like, I live with four other adults who I'm not related to except in terms of our chosen family mm. because I can't, I can't afford a house. I can't uh, to buy a house. I just, millennials, we've, we're, in it, we're not in a <laughs> position. And we have to realize that there's alternative ways of living together in Christian community, which we have done very well here. We are incarnating uh, the values of Christ here in this house that I live in, mm -hmm. which I should say um, is connected with this nonprofit group called the Charles River Episcopal Co-Housing Endeavor, CRESH uh, acronym. And that's the, the nonprofit that has organized us. But anyway, back to what I'm saying here is that here Jesus wanted to be around his closest family um, for Passover, and that was his closest family. The people that he chose, the people that, that followed him around, um, he didn't own his own home. Uh, I don't know if I said this last time, but Jesus never once in his adult ministry earned money and used it to provide for others. We think, mm. oh, that's what a Mormon man should do. Well, here's our Mormon man right here. He <laughs> never did that. He re re relied on the generosity of women who were the breadwinners. If you look at Luke chapter 8, I think we talked about We did talk time. about this. It's, it was a great thought, though. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about some other gender nonconforming expectations. So we have in Luke chapter 22 a very curious thing. So remember, Passover, Sorry, very busy. Still in Luke 22? Yeah, Okay. still in, in Luke 22. Passover, very busy. You have literally hundreds of thousands of extra people in Jerusalem because this was a pilgrimage fest. You're supposed to all go to Jer Jerusalem for this. In, in 22, verse uh, 10, Jesus instructs his disciples, Behold, when ye are entered into the city, there shall a man meet you bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house where he entereth in. And that's how they know how to connect with the um, householder who is providing them the upper room. Now, here's my question for you. If this is this city is so busy, there's going to be lots and lots of people getting water. How can you identify a, a particular person out of all these thousands of people by just saying there's a man carrying water? Mm. What do you think? Do you think that would single out a single person? No. Um, I mean, I always, I always read this as... Somebody is waiting for you. Like he said, yeah. when you are entered into a city, there shall a man meet you. Like I always read this as whoever this guy is, he's waiting on. Yeah. Yeah. That's how I always read this. Well, here's the interesting thing. Part of the gender norms at this at this time was that 
carrying water in jars was an absolutely gendered thing for women. Oh, like okay. If you look from Genesis twenty, I think it's twenty two or twenty four, um, down to to John chapter four with the woman at the well, this was a assigned women's work. So here you have a man doing what the society thought was women's work, which is how you know that's the only man. Like there would be women carrying water, <laughs> but there's only one man who's going to be carrying water, and that's how you know. Mm. Um, I th- and so that's how that man was identified. Uh, and Jesus says to follow them. So he trusted the arrangements for the Passover meal to this person who willingly flaunts the norms of his time for gendered expectations. Now, boy, this would get President Oaks's garments on fire because Jesus is telling someone, look, this is a very radical thing that Jesus is saying. You know, follow someone who's who's defying gender norms. And President Oaks um, really would not be comfortable with that. Mm. He's all about you've got strict gender norms. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing I wanted to say was a little bit about the uh, the garden experience for Jesus. It's so prominent for, for Latter-day Saints to make a big deal about the suffering in the garden. Okay. But I think what really adds to the suffering was that he did it alone. Mm. Like his disciples eventually abandoned him, and they fell asleep during it. Well, I should say it was the male disciples, because we look at the women. Luke clearly records that the women accompanied him to the cross and the women accompanied his body to the tomb. Mm. Um, the men, whoops, where did they go? Uh, so we should, uh, should we, we should lift up the role and voices of women here and the steadfastness of women and not just skip over them because yeah. they're there. Yeah. They're there. And Luke makes a big deal about, about how the women were there and the, and the men uh, were not. Mm. But anyway... So Jesus was abandoned, and I think that's what made this his task so much harder was that abandonment. Mm-hmm. And I think that connects with what many of us who are LGBT, because we are born to people not of our people. Unlike many other um, minorities, we're born into, the, into families that can easily reject us. About some of the only other analogies would be people with disabilities, yeah. right, are born uh, into families. But we're born into families that don't love like us, and then that quickly turns into them not loving us. Mm. And we need to we need to feel so much more empathy f- for people who have this white hot sting of abandonment as part of their daily life. And that's what Jesus is connecting with the people he trusted most to be with him are the ones who, who abandoned him when he most needed it. And it's the same for us who are LGBTQ. Mm. The people that we rely on most are our local leaders, our family members, are the, the first ones to turn on us and the ones who do us the most damage. Like it's the people on the street. Yes, there's hate crimes, but it's people. I've never really been hurt by people who don't know me uh, for, being LGBT, uh, for being gay. Mm. Um, it's the people who are closest to me that have caused the most pain. And we should really think about that. Uh, when we get to what President Oaks said, we should really think about that hard. All right. So that's all I had to say about my, uh, uh, yeah. And the other thing is, uh, there are numerous texts throughout the Bible that reject 
marriage and childbearing as the only way to live a full Christian life. We've got examples of single people, examples of eunuchs, examples of people not marrying. We've got 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We've got Matthew 19. We've got Isaiah 56. There's just many, many texts where that, that, that allow for this sense of ministry to the one. Like we don't all have the same, our lives aren't all going to look the same in this world or in the next, mm-hmm. and they don't have to. Yeah. So that's all I had to say for Come Follow Me. All right, brilliant. Then that will segue perfectly into our prayer role, and I think uh, we both know what I'm going to talk about. Yes. So uh, I'm just going to get right into it. For those of you who have not heard, President Oaks of the First Presidency gave a devotional at BYU-Hawaii. Now, I do want to speak somewhat carefully because I, I want to make very clear that I sustain our leaders like right, I really I do. I do too. Yeah, like comfortably raise my right hand to the square every conference, you know. However, I am of the impression that I that doing that does not mean I got to agree with them all the time or even most of the time. And, you know, President Oaks has lately just been, become one of those people. Now, President Oaks, to his credit, something I've always appreciated about President Oaks is that even though this is a man who was a judge for a living, a lawyer for a living, and is, a comp- and is accustomed to using legalese in his speech, tends to speak very plainly. Like, I've always enjoyed his talks for that reason, is that he speaks very plainly, very to the point. His sentences are short and easy to follow. My first memory and one of my favorite memories of President Oaks was when he gave a talk. I think I was in, like, high school at the time it happened, where he literally opened a talk by saying, I have felt impressed to speak about divorce. The title of his talk, Divorce. Like, I knew exactly where it was going. I knew exactly what he was talking about. I never got lost or had to, dedu- or had to deduce where he was going with it. It's why he became, he was my, like my first standout apostle when I started taking the church seriously. So I just want that out there before mm-hmm. I go ahead and discuss this stuff. Now, the talk started out well enough. He actually started saying some things that uh, we don't really talk about enough in the church and that aren't really heard from the pulpit enough, uh, namely issues of mental illness, anxiety, things that are influencing our youth heavily, things like FOMO, which he (laughs) uh, eloquently explained (laughs) as the fear of missing out, which I just don't hear a lot from general authorities than using acronyms like that. And he went on to explain that, that we tend to get into this trap of comparing ourselves to other people um, that we see as a means media, of helping us with our anxiety, anxiety, even though that alone may not be enough, which he didn't really address. But I do want to acknowledge mm-hmm. that effort. Where things went left, like heavily left, uh, th- th- this is what happened. And this is what I see being quoted the most. He tells us that when we are, he tells us, we're confronted by a culture of evil and personal wickedness in this world, and then he proceeds to make a list. Dishonesty, pornography, perversions, the diminishing of marriage and childbearing, and then something that really ruffled a lot of feathers, the phenomenon of lesbian, gay, and transgender lifestyles and values. Sorry, he says, the the increasing frequency and power of the culture and phenomenon of lesbian, gay, and transgender lifestyles and values. My immediate impression upon reading that was, first of all, what the heck are lesbian, gay, and transgender lifestyles? Like, when, when are these existence, when are these existences monolithic and why are they inherently evil? 
And what really punches my ticket further is he doesn't really go on to explain himself. Like me as somebody who really tries to follow certain rules of conversation and argument, when somebody makes a significant claim, a brazen claim especially, I'm looking for you to explain yourself. I'm mm -hmm. looking for you to substantiate that claim. But something that I feel comes with a degree of authority or age is you get to this point where you feel like you don't really have to explain yourself, especially when you make brazen claims like this. I don't tolerate this very well from anyone, least of all leaders of the church, because I've always been, okay, not always, but I've been taught and I have learned that it ultimately falls on me to determine what I'm going to accept from these leaders, that I have to pray, that I have to receive my own witness of what they are saying to be true. So not, not too long before uh, President Oaks went into this, he talked about how it was also a problem when people didn't believe in absolutes or when they didn't accept things as they were given to them and that they were receiving things and accepting them as they saw fit. Like, for a brief moment, it sounded like he was kind of spitting in the face of agency, but that might be a little bit extreme, and I want to acknowledge that. Um, but getting back to this whole issue of the condemnation of LGBTQ lifestyles, quote-unquote, as evil or inherently wicked, kind of, well, it's obviously a problem. He doesn't offer any argument, no scripture to do so, and on that merit alone, I don't think he deserves to be taken seriously. Now, to add further irony to this, the first thing that Elder Oaks lists is dishonesty. Like, how are you going to tell people that being their authentic selves is a problem but then in doing so, they are being dishonest with themselves. Like it is severely problematic to a lot of people who are in this community to be anything other than their true selves. Yet you are condemning dishonesty in this same section where you are telling people to be dishonest. I feel like that is a huge problem and a huge bit of cognitive dissonance for a lot of people in this community who are still on the fence about where or when or how they're going to come out. So for people like you, Derek, I don't see a lot of harm being done to you specifically. You know who you are. You are confident right. in who you are. Yeah. You know where you're going and you know where your testimony mm -hmm. is. My worry is for the youth of this church who still are coming to grips with their own identities as you know, queer people in the church. They don't know how they're supposed to operate yet. But hearing words like this, hearing teachings like this with no substantiation when they are taught that they should just follow the prophet and that the prophet will never lead us astray, that is where things can get dangerous. And I don't believe and I really don't like that President Oaks went and said this so brazenly without even explaining himself to people who are still really wrestling with their with themselves about this very issue to the point of self-harm and occasionally suicide so ah man I, I just I, I can't with other I can't with President Oaks right now just because of this sentence and I really hope that the people affected by his words get some help and I really hope President Oaks eventually makes a speedy turn or at, at the very least mm -hmm. acknowledges the error of this particular language. Yeah. So th yeah, thank you so much for all those thoughts. I have some things I want to add. Thank you. Um, first of all, let's, my, my main academic field is biblical studies. So I look at how an apostle communicates. I look to uh, the apostle Paul. And when you look, when he had the most important things to say, 
He was also the most insistent on outlining a good argument and appealing to sources and appealing to scriptures and making a persuasive case because in a world of agency, the only power that religious authorities have is the authority to persuade. Mm. And just saying, well, I told you so, that doesn't persuade anyone. No. That doesn't even work in th- on four-year-olds. No. <laughs> so it doesn't work on people who are supposed to become um, celestial adults one day with initiative and responsibility. A yes, line sir. like, because I told you so, doesn't teach us anything. No. And that's exactly what Paul did. He led by example. He sh- especially, I'm look- thinking about Romans and Galatians as very hard line, not hard line, but very well thought out effective persuasive tools like he actually i don't know how you can can read that and then not be convinced by it he didn't just he could have he could have made galatians and romans one chapter each instead of (laughs) six chapters and 16 chapters if Mm. he decided i I, i'm an apostle i get to say what i want and you believe it but he did not have that attitude no um especially even when he was losing his uh, his apostolic authority uh among the corinthians and second corinthians he, he even made less of his apostolic authority. He 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 said uh, things that m- were more persuasive. And about the only times that he really appealed to, like I'm an apostle, you got to get on board, is when he was defending the marginalized, the mm. Gentiles in Galatians. He's mm. like, look, I'm an apostle. You got like I have revelation here. Like I know the Lord. And he was, but he was using that as a part of every possible tool he could to uplift the Gentiles from being. Um, mistreated and uh forced to become circumcised which which is interesting because the covenant path up until then was circumcision Mm. like talk about staying on the covenant path for thousands of years circumcision was necessary to be part of god's people and paul's like whoops not anymore (laughs) and if that can change if that fundamental piece of the covenant path can change Think about what what can else can change. But let's get back to President Oaks. Sorry, I just want to highlight something you said there, Derek. Romans and Galatians, all of the letters that Paul wrote, by the way, were to people who were not following the gospel as they should, <laughs> which is all the more reason you need to make an effort to be persuasive when you're trying to get people on the covenant path and not just rely on your authority as an apostle. All the letters of Paul are basically him saying, you're doing this wrong. Let me tell you the way it's supposed to be done mm-hmm. and why. Like that is the kind of appeal I would like to see our leaders make because right. that's that's basically these letters. And, you know, when you highlighted that, I was like, let's just make sure we name yeah. exactly what Paul is doing. And I, one thing I want to look at is is we have to frame the, uh, Oaks's thoughts in terms of the, the style and, and, the, and the genre because okay. what he's doing here is he's not so much speaking as a prophet, but speaking as a grandpa. He's speaking to college kids. Yes. As in someone who's had more decades, more and more decades than I can probably count, of experience. And he's like, look, I can tell you something a little bit about anxiety and how things were different in my time and how it was less anxious because it was all pretty and you need to get on, and we didn't have social media and we – worked really hard and we did this and that's how and that's my advice to you and that's how we should frame this like this is like i said this is probably his sincerest best effort to um to impart some wisdom to these kids Hmm. uh in terms of wisdom i really love what president oaks said when the policy was rescinded back in april Mm mm-hmm that he made an announcement, and he said these words, which are so beautiful. He and, said, and when was this, by the way? Was this at the time the announcement was made for the policy yes, being rescinded? Okay, yes, just making yeah. sure. When, when, he, when they announced the policy 
uh, he, he had this to say. He said, we want to reduce the hate and confrontation. Oh, no. We want to reduce the hate and contention so common today. We are optimistic that a majority of people, whatever their beliefs and orientations, long for better understanding and less contentious communications. That is surely our desire, and we seek the help of our members and others to attain it. Mm. So I love this advice that, look, we're not going to agree on this, but we, we can avoid contention, we can avoid hostility and hate, and we can uplift our communications, mm. which I wish President Oaks would have lived into his own advice <laughs> when he said these things because he clearly made this more contentious than it needed to be. Mm. Yeah, I get that President Oaks has his views, yeah. but he has to think about how it's, how it's framed and how this is going to impact real people. Absolutely. And he, the way he talked about us was like we weren't in the room. Like, oh, this is some foreign say, like, threat. Does he not think we're in the room, that very room that he's speaking to, or that we're not going to get wind of this? Yes. Like, so we, we who are LGBT, we're going to hear that. And he's not talking to us. He's not ministering to us. Mm. He's speaking behind our backs about us. Mm. And that, which I don't know why he does that, because I know he has a gay grandson. Mm. And he, he should know. That, that we're part of the community mm. and we need to be ministered to, not protected, f protecting other people from. It's almost like how you would amputate a part of your body lest the infection get to the rest of your body. Mm. I think that's, that's almost what he's, how he's treating us here. Um, one, of the, one of the first things I want to say is I've survived worse than what President Oaks said. <laughs> Yes, you have. Or, or could say. <laughs> um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm personally, like, nothing can, can damage me, right? Yeah. But there's other people who, who aren't. Um, and I think that's, that's really sad is that he's actually perverting the direction of the danger that's happening. He's like, oh, we need to be safe, and these LGBTs are going to hurt us in some way, and they're going to damage us, and you need to be. But it actually the danger goes the other way. And it's his straight privilege and straight fragility that makes him afraid to have the hard conversation. Mm. And he should actually say, look, these people are the ones who are in danger, and we need to go out and protect them. One of the things that we need to think about is how does this statement function? Not so much whether it is right or wrong or true or false, but what is the function of it? What does it do? How does it work? And what it does, the function of this is to disconnect people from their LGBT friends. Because what it does, it, it will say, look, oh, you've got to separate yourself from these threats to our peace and security. Um, that's really what his logic is. Mm. He's, a, he's accounting our movement as one of evil, something to be avoided and, and resisted. Yeah. Um, one thing I want to talk about is, is you can't pursue revelation in a vacuum. You need to have information. You need to do your homework. You need to study it out in your mind. And he, in this text or anywhere else, I don't think has actually shown us the receipts. Like, mm. where, did, where did, did you do your homework on this? Have you actually engaged these issues in a way that can let you go to the Lord with the right questions? Mm. Because going to the Lord with the same questions uh, hasn't worked. Um, in part because I don't think he's fully open to new revelation on this. Mm. I want to talk about, like I said, uh, you know, Spencer W. Kimball was born in 1895, and he's probably one of the biggest architects of our 
current culture and and uh, policy and thing around this. It was this this stuff doesn't go back to Brigham. It doesn't go back to uh, Joseph. Even uh, I'm talking about L- anti-LGBT stuff in the church. This yeah. is something that really dates from the 1960s. So it's not this like embedded tradition of of making a big deal about this in a particular way. Now Spencer W. Kimball was born in 1895. I learned that the um, XY chromosome determination system for humans and other mammals, this was not discovered until 1905, right? So when, when, when Spencer W. Kimball was born, people didn't even know how, how people turned out male or female um, in terms of their anatomy and uh, how they're assigned at birth. But these people at that time absorbed from their surrounding culture so many ideals about what a family should look like. They didn't see gay people. They saw, you know, pretty families that had a mom and dad and kids. And, like, that's their map of what the world should look like. That's their pretty picture. Hmm. And if that's your idea of pretty, it's not gonna, it's not ever going to go back to being pretty. So we need to ha- come up with a new way of looking at these things. Um, and so, yeah, there's just so many more things I could say about what President Oaks said. But what I would like to do is go back to what Tan France said and live up to the best in our character. Hmm. Um, because that's what, what he focused on is like, we're good people and we should live into doing better. Um, and, and I think we, along with Oaks, we can do, we as the people can do better and we should, and we should not be content with not, not knowing, uh, the things that we don't know. Um, I also wanted to, to just say one other thing about President Oaks. He has one line in there. He says, this is one of the threats he was talking about. Finally, you live in a culture that focuses on individual rights and desires rather than the responsibilities and cooperative efforts that have built our societies. And I find that a very particular tool uh, that he's using to reinforce his view. He's now taking our our lives and making them about individual rights and desires mm-hmm. because that he's coming out from a legal background where you're balancing the majority stability with minority rights Hmm. and he gets that and he says we should rather focus on responsibilities and cooperative efforts that have built our societies rather than uh so so it sounded like he's he's actually um disrespecting uh our our actual rights here and and just washing them away as something relatively unimportant Hmm. but what he's missing is the fact when we are our authentic selves it's not about just me selfishly getting some pleasure you know, in the back of someone's truck one night. It's about me being the type of person who is so secure in myself that I can go out and be a constructive part of society. I wouldn't be the person I am today if I were not out as gay. Mm. I would be useless to society. I would. I cannot build society if I can't even build myself. Mm. So this isn't something about selfish. It's not about individual rights. Uh, I mean, it is on one level, but that's not all that we're saying. Mm. We've got a bigger case than just, oh, I have a right to do this. Yeah. Uh, We and let's talk about individual rights and desires. You almost have an obligation to do it. Yes, I do. And he has an obligation to defend as part of this cooperative effort to defend LGBTs. Let's talk about this cake thing. You know, the whole, uh, you know, the gay couple walks into the cake maker and they want a cake for their wedding and then they. Uh, we've had a number of cases like this, and in in some cases the courts have sided with the with the baker, and sometimes they've sided with the gay couple. Uh, 
But what we're missing here is the whole religious freedom argument is also based on the concept of individual rights and desires. It totally is, and he knows that. Religious freedom is his thing as a, uh, as a legal scholar. And he knows that the religion, that the same argument goes the other way with uh, religious liberties, as you've got to balance the rights of the minorities to practice their religion against the, the collectiveness of the whole. So his logic here in his statement at, at the devotional would be, okay, cake baker, you can't focus on your individual rights and desires in this case because you've got to be part of a society where gay people can get cake and not be discriminated against. That is more important than your ability to claim a religious exemption from, from doing your job and baking the same cake for them as you would for straight people. That's cooperative. Like I could, under, I could get behind a cake baker who said, you know what, I, I, I have my own personal views, but that's not going to stop me from serving gay people cake. You know, like how desperate can you be if you are trying to bend the world in order to deprive me of cake? <laughs> like, I don't know what your concept of Christ is, but Christ is the one who said, if someone forces you to go one mile, go with them too. Like if the government forces you as part of a non-discrimination thing to bake me a cake, you should bake me too, according to Jesus. Yes, give me two cakes. Give me two cakes. <laughs> All the cakes. <laughs> so that's how. That's kind of where I want to wrap things up with Oaks. Um, it's Oaks' statement will continue to cause a lot of pain. We should uplift all of the voices mm. of LGBTs around this statement. And I don't know him, so I can't really hold him accountable directly. But what I can do is hold the common people accountable, and that's who I'm going to put on the prayer roll. All right. For myself is is the people who are now excusing or defending or massaging Oaks's statement because they're more concerned about what they look like mm -hmm. than how their their friend is suffering. Mm. Powerful. Well then, we'll end the prayer roll there. Uh, just by way of general announcement and reminder, uh, first off, thank you everybody for listening and thank you yeah, guys for, for listening. And thank you for uh, contributing your feedback. Again, we do have an email we are at uh, beyondtheblockpodcast at gmail.com. Continue to send us your ideas and your feedback. You can do it there. You can do it on Twitter. You can do it on Facebook. We're on Instagram now, too. We're on all the socials. So please get at us. Let us know if you got ideas for the show. Let us know if you got uh, you know, anything. We're trying to have this segment eventually where we do uh, listener letters, where we answer uh, questions surrounding the gospel. And uh, if we can work that into a segment somehow, we'd love to do that eventually. But uh, we require your participation, and we want to make this as interactive as possible so that not only, not just our voices are heard, we get to hear y'all's as well, and we get to talk about the issues that you guys are experiencing as well. So I think that is all I have by That's way of all I have. Sweet. Thanks. Then we will see you guys next week. See you next week. Bye.